Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 90, Christ Died for Us. This episode contains part three in the final installment of my recent annihilationism debate with Joshua Whips from ChoosingHats.com. In episode 88, you listened to part one, which included our opening statements and our first rebuttals. In episode 89, the previous episode in the feed, you listened to part two, which contained our first round of cross-examination and our uh, second rebuttals. Uh, And so it was at that point that we moved into this third section where we have our second round of cross-examination, our closing statements, and some questions sent in to our moderator by uh, listeners. So uh, let's go ahead and move right into this third part of the debate. Okay, I'm ready. Jeff, whenever you want to start recording. Okay. Uh, you affirmed in the first round of cross-examination, Joshua, that God will not extend to the damned in hell any blessings or any goodness. Do you still stand by that? Of course. Is physical life a blessing? Sure. Great. Okay. Uh, now, you've argued at Choosing Hats that it's unintelligible to speak of destruction as eternal if there's no present mm-hmm. referent. Do you stand by that? Okay. John Gill and Jonathan Edwards both used the phrase eternal destruction to refer to the destruction of the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, saying that they would never be rebuilt. Were Gill and Edwards speaking unintelligibly? That's in a different sense. So there's a sense in which I'm, I, I so, so then it is possible to speak of eternal destruction in at least one sense, uh, when the present, uh, when there's no present referent. Is that right? Depends on whether we're talking about a finite city or, um, a man. Okay. John Gill said, uh, th- let me, let's do Edwards first. He said that, uh, those cities were destroyed and have never been built since and are not capable of being rebuilt. Is he talking about the cities or is he talking about its inhabitants? He's talking about the cities there. Okay. So then it is possible to speak of eternal destruction in that sense, uh, when there's no present referent. Is that right? It depends on what you're talking about, eternal destruction. If you're talking about it like it is in Jude, where it's in the intermediate state, it's for a specific purpose, and it's for a specific amount of time. Yeah, the phrase everlasting destruction isn't in, in Jude. But uh, in Daniel 7.26, uh, it says that the dominion of the beast will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Will the dominion of the beast exist after that point? No. Okay. So how could it be destroyed forever? If if it's if it's unintelligible to speak of destruction without there being a present tense, present reference. Uh, I believe it was punishment I was talking about, not destruction. Actually, I think about it. If you can quote me, that's fine. But uh, if I believe I was talking about punishment at the time. So then you're telling me that punishment is punishment the only word that can be used uh, with connection with eternal and not speak intelligibly about about it if there's no present referent, but destruction is different. Well, not necessarily. Okay, let me back up then. 
when what are you talking about when you're talking about eternal destruction? Are you talking about the reduction empirically, which only applies to an empirical sense, or are you talking about the um, the destruction that comes from God, which is not being spoken of in an empirical sense? I'm, I'm not sure that I follow your question, and I think it's my turn to ask questions. Uh, Edwards and Raymond both said that annihilation is, quote, eternal. Were they speaking unintelligibly by saying that by speaking of eternal annihilation, even though there will be a point at which, according to us, the wicked will not be, exist? Um, only if you're talking about in the finite sense. Okay. That is intelligible. John Gill said in Matthew 10:28 that the soul survives the body and lives whilst the body is in a state of death. Do you think that Gill thought the body would never decay and would go on until the resurrection? Obviously not. Okay, so then he can speak of the body in a state of death even when, the, when there is no body left to exist in a state. Is that right? Sure, because right. the death. Okay, so uh, now let's see. I want to talk more about the actual text because, like I said in my opening, I, I prefer the uh, – I, I agree with the sentiment repeatedly expressed by Dr. James White about focusing on the relevant texts. So I want to talk about – let's see here. We talked about unquenchable um, – so what do you, what is it, in the imagery, if that's what it is, in Matthew 3.12 and Luke 3.17 and in the furnace of fire uh, parable in, in uh, Matthew 13, um, what does katakayo mean there that's, that's translated burn up? Uh, let me look that up. I've got it in there, Matthew 13. The uh, katakayo burn up. Mm-hmm. Which verse is that? Uh, one of them is Matthew thirteen thirty. means to burn, to burn up. Okay. Are there any more definitions that you can cite? Uh, I could go through Thayer's lexicon, consumed by fire, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. How does, how does Thayer uh, apply? How does, what does Thayer use Exodus 3.2, uh, Kadokayo's appearance in Exodus 3.2? How does he use it there? What, what does he say that that demonstrates as its meaning? Exodus 3.2. He mentions it right there in his definition pretty early on, I believe. I don't see it. Okay. Well, I'll okay. Uh, I'll I'll mention this in my closing then if I've got time. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see here. What is how, the word apolumi uh, in Matthew ten twenty eight? Is there anywhere in the synoptic gospels when that word is used to describe what one person does to another, in which you can demonstrate that it does not mean slay or kill? Don't know of any offhand, no. Okay. Um, so, in the book of Daniel 7, the interpreter, whether in 7, where it's uh, the angel, or whether it's in 2, whether it's Daniel himself, does, Dan, do the, does the interpreter uh, interpret 
whatever happens to the object in the imagery as having anything to do with the individual inhabitants of the city that it represents? In Daniel 7. Where or 2. They're both talking about the same events as even Gil would recognize. Okay. And but let's look at 7. That's a good one to go to. In Daniel 7, I- go to... Uh, while I'm speaking, go to uh, verse 26, where yeah. the angel interprets it. Now, in the vision, as, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the beast, uh, which is in many ways identical to the beast of Revelation, uh, the beast is thrown alive into a, a, or the beast is destroyed, its body destroyed, and then thrown into a burning, uh, burning fire. Um, but how does the angel interpret it in verse 26 of Daniel 27? says that his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Okay, now if there's a divine interpretation of an image, uh, do we have justification for adding an interpretation uh, that isn't given by the divine by a divine interpreter? No. Okay. So, uh, what do you? Th- how do you interpret the eternal torment of the beast in Revelation twenty? That his dominion will be taken away. That it will be. Uh, that it will no longer be there, will be no more, okay. that there is no more dominion. Okay, that's good. So would you So would you say then that Revelation, the imagery of the book of Revelation there, doesn't actually uh, clearly tell us anything about whether or not the individuals who comprise that institution will go on tormented for eternity. Is that right? And which verse in Revelation? I'm Revelation sorry. 2010. That's okay. Okay. Revelation 2010. Um, I don't know if I'd say that. I mean, it's... Uh, Okay, well, let me ask you this. I apologize. Let me ask you this. Uh, when the beast of Revelation is described as uh, having elements of the beasts here in Daniel 7, um, the, you know, li- uh, uh, the bear is mentioned, the, the leopard, um, you know, the, the, four, the, the seven heads and the ten horns, all of this imagery comes through. Let me, ask, let me back up even a further step. Would you agree that the imagery and revelation of the beast uh, is a recapitulation or at least draws upon the same imagery as Daniel 7? Sure. Okay. And would you agree that, uh, that, would you agree that these images are talking about the same events? Sure. Okay. So the question that I have for you is, in the, you just told me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you said that the divine interpreter, and you agree with this interpretation, interprets the beast of Daniel 7 being thrown into the fire as meaning that his, that the institution's dominion will come to an end. Is that right? Sure. The devil doesn't reign in hell. And Great. Is the beast or anyone under? Great. And, and you also told me that when a divine interpretation exists of imagery, uh, that that's the interpretation that we should go with rather than uh, speculate on additional interpretations. Is that Would that be fair? Sure. So, again, uh, what in the text of Revelation 20 gives us the reason, reason to interpret, if any, gives us reason to interpret the imagery as communicating the ongoing suffering of the individuals comprising that institution? They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Okay, but we already talked about uh, th- th- that's... In the imagery, the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it's the same imagery. Well, it's, it's imagery telling the same event as Daniel 7. And whereas in Daniel 7, the beast is slain and then his body destroyed in a river of fire, that would contradict the imagery here. But we both agree that the divine interpreter of Daniel 7 tells us that the imagery communicates that the dominion of the beast will be taken away, will be removed forever, will, be, will come to an end. That's so correct. so why do you change your, your tune and say that the tormented here in the imagery communicates the torment of the individuals comprising the institution? I'm not. It's talking about the um, – in one case, it's talking about the dominion. In the other case, it's talking about and they. In the imagery, that's correct. But the imagery of Daniel 7 is also uses, uh, uses 
him and, and they and stuff like that, referring to the beast in the imagery. So let me ask you this. Is the beast here, uh, when, when it talks about the beast, is it talking of, is the beast in the imagery um, uh, identical to, is what happens to the beast in the imagery to be taken to refer to what's going to happen to the people who comprise the institution in Revelation 20? I don't see why not. I mean, that that seems to be what it's talking about because it's talking about the personal Satan. It's talking about the the persons who comprise those whose names are not written in the book of life. It's talking about the false prophet. When you're talking about the beast and the false prophet, those are the the world system, the political system, and the I understand, false but but you, religions. but you but we already talked about Daniel seven, where. In the same kinds of images, not counting Satan himself, the, where the beast is thrown into a fire. His, his beast, the beast is slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire in the imagery in verse 11 of Daniel 7. But the interpreter, who's divine, unlike you and I, interprets that imagery where, what, where something happens to the beast as communicating <laughs> something which happens to its dominion in reality, namely that it comes to an end. So my question for you is, on, when, when we have a divine interpretation of, of, of an imagery, which John draws upon here, what warrant, where, where what happens to the beast is not identical to what happens to the people uh, uh, who comprise the institution, why, why do you um, apply a different hermeneutic here, and why do you not go with the divine interpretation and instead try to come up with your own? Well, that sort of begs the question there that I'm not going with the divine interpretation because I don't agree with you what destroyed means. We can't just uh, talk about the facts. We I'm, can't I'm not talk talking about the facts. I'm talking about how the divine interpreter of Daniel 7 interprets the imagery of Daniel 7. Yes. So let, let's back up a step. Okay. In, okay. The, in the imagery, do you agree that in Daniel 7, the beast is seen in the imagery as slain and then, thro- and then his dead body thrown into a river of fire and destroyed? I see the beast slain, I see its body destroyed and given to the burning fire, correct. Great. Now, and see the same does, thing in, in Revelation 20.10. Now, oh, I agree. But, in, but how does the divine interpreter interpret Daniel 7's imagery of the beast thrown into the fire? That his dominion will be no more. The devil does not reign in hell. Great. Does the divine interpretation of Daniel 7 at all talk about the individuals comprising the institution represented by the beast? No. It, okay, great. it does in Revelation so, 20. Uh, really, really. Uh, so where, where does Revelation 20.10 talk about the individuals that comprise the beast? Revelation 20.10 doesn't. The entire book of Revelation does. Okay, but in the... It tells us what the beast is. Okay, but the beast in Daniel 7 also is, includes the individuals who comprise the institution. But what, ha- but the, in the divine interpreter interprets the fate of the beast as having nothing to do with its individuals. It has to do with its dominion, right? Uh, it has to do with its dominion and the individuals. Okay, where in Daniel 7 does it talk about the fate of the individuals comprising the institution represented by the beast? In verse 11. Verse 11 is part of the imagery. It says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Do you think that uh, there's a human being with a horn that's speaking there in real life? It's talking about the symbol for... Great, and it says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. What is that referring to, the beast or the individuals that comprise the beast? The beast is the individuals that comprise the beast, and the individuals that comprise the beast are the beast. Okay, so what does a divine interpreter interpret the imagery to mean? Does the, does the interpretation offered have anything to do with the individuals comprising the, rep- the institution represented by the beast? First, there are two interpretations given. There is Revelation 20.10, and there is later on in Daniel 7. Yeah, but we've already established that Revelation 20 only refers to the beast in the imagery. There's nothing in 20.10 that talks about the individuals comprising the beast, Correct. It does in the surrounding context, and Revelation also defines what the beast is. Okay, but I, we're not talking about what the beast is. What we're talking about is what the beasts being thrown into the fire in the imagery represents. Right? I understand. 
Okay. And we differ on what that means, and that's what where we keep okay. knocking heads here. So, so let me just make sure I understand. You interpret the, uh, you you agree with the divine interpretation of Daniel seven, which has nothing to do with the individuals comprising the beast, or at least you haven't expressed how it refers to the individuals comprising the beast. Uh, the divine interpreter offers the interpretation that the dominion of the beast comes to an end, but in Revelation, but you but you take Revelation twenty as communicating that what happens to the imagery also happens to the individuals comprising the institution represented in the imagery. Is that correct? Because that's what the imagery is meant to convey. But, uh, on what basis? The context. Okay, can you give me something in the context that tells us that the individual, individuals comprising the beast will be tormented forever and ever in, in the lake of fire? Yeah. Where? Uh, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Is, is the devil part of the beast? No. Okay, all right, uh, that's the all beast? the time that we've got. Thank you. Okay. Okay, now it's... Um uh, Joshua's turn for 15 minutes of cross-examination. Okay. Chris? Yes, sir. Is it your assertion that the range of semantic domain for death consists solely of being rendered lifeless? No, but I do think that the primary meaning of death, uh, as I quoted at least a few theologians as, as, dem- as uh, agreeing with me, has to do with being rendered lifeless, and it has particular, particularly to do with physical life. Now, it, the, the, the physical death can be used proleptically or metaphorically to refer to some sense in which people are spiritually dead, as Gill himself used the word figuratively. Okay. Um, what is spiritual death? Uh, I actually kind of agree with the people that I quoted in my rebuttal. Would you like me to quote them since I agree with them? No, I'm... If you want to. Okay. So John Gill said that uh, the soul is is capable of dying in a figurative sense, a moral or spiritual death. Albert Barnes said that what that he he adds further light to what I think it means. He says they're dead in relation to that to which they afterward became alive, holiness. Uh, So in other words, let me me make clear what I'm trying to get at here. What I'm getting at is that um, when it comes to life with God, living a life... um, uh, let me put it this way. Here's, here's how Herman yeah. Bovink said it. He said that the physical contrast between life and death gradually makes way for the moral and spiritual difference between a life spent in the fear of the Lord and a life in the service of sin. So what I understand death to be used uh, metaphorically to refer to spiritual death, it's talking about um, a life spent absent from the Lord. Okay. So are you affirming that man does have a spirit? No. When I say spiritual life, okay. I don't necessarily... Okay. So if you don't affirm that man has a spirit, then how can you affirm uh, along with Gill and along with these other authors? Yeah, well, you're assuming that the word spiritual means that a person has a spirit. But if you're agreeing with Gill, you also have to. Otherwise, you don't agree with Gill, correct? No, that's incorrect. I don't see how that's not the case. If you are to affirm with Gill that life, uh, that spiritual life or spiritual death, either, either or is the essential part of the man that is not physical, is immaterial in nature. No, but that's... That you would have to agree with Gill that to say that. You um, To agree with Gill, you would have to say that, that that is the case, would you not? That's that's incorrect. He talks about a moral or spiritual death. Barnes talks about uh, uh, in relation to holiness and spiritual life. It has to do with sin. It has to do with righteousness. In other words, the, the emphasis here in spiritual death doesn't have to do with the individual's constitution. It has to do with uh, 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 it has to do with morality. It has to do with uh, spirituality, life spent with God. It's not about a man's constitution. It's about his, okay. the life that he lives. Okay. Um, is morality physical or spiritual? 
uh, morality is uh, neither. It's uh, morality is what God defines as being what's right versus what's wrong. Okay, is is morality immaterial or is it material? It's immaterial. Okay, if it's immaterial, how? Why are we speaking of? Uh, why are we speaking of that about a? Can we affirm if we are agnostic to whether there is a physical or a physical and uh, spiritual nature to man? How can we affirm that there is a moral nature to a physical thing? Because not even monists would say that there's no immaterial part of man. You're just assuming that the immaterial part of man is an immaterial soul as classically defined. Uh, which monist? You said that like it was uh, like it was monolithic. Well, of course it's not monolithic, but but even even physicalists who would say that the mind emanates or emerges from the brain, what they're talking about is not a physical thing. They're talking about an immaterial thing that arises from the physical. How is that distinguishable from a spirit? Uh, in the sense that it's entirely dependent upon the brain's functioning in order to continue to function. Okay. Do you consider? Um, <laughs> but which one do you affirm? Do you affirm one or the other or neither? I think you know the answer to that question. I don't affirm either yet because I'm I, I'm undecided as to what I think the scripture teaches. So how can you agree with Gill when he does have a position on that subject? Because if, if you can show me where in the text that I quoted contextually when he talks about a moral death, he's talking about the spirit actually being dead in some sense uh, rather than the way he explicitly says, which is figurative, then please show me. Okay, um, I I don't think I need to cite Gil to say that he believes that. Oh, I didn't deny however, that, that he thinks that people have a soul. However, um, that is that is something intrinsic to if you look at his um, nature of the nature of the life of man. Isn't that what he says that man is composed of? Spirit, which is moral and moral and um and intellectual and then the body which um is physical and relates to it correct i think that he yes i agree that he can he affirms the existence of a moral spirit as diff- as defined differently from monists okay so all right um let's get off of that on page 86 of his PDF, the Bible teaches annihilationism. Joey Deere cites uh, Froome, from whom he gets his concept of present, de- present tense, tense death being proleptic. Are you cognizant of Froome's comments on the subject? Uh, I don't remember them perfectly, but I can pull up Froome's comments if you'd like me to look at them. Okay. Um, it would take me a moment, but... That's fine. Uh, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, Froome says that the death that God threatened actually began in Eden... On the very day of transgression, as Adam came under the sentence of death. Sure, yeah, he's talking about what he calls judicial death. Yes. Um, is this to be considered code language, as was uh, scornfully suggested on your show, concerning spiritual death, or to be considered within the entirety of Froome's work? Uh, I, can you repeat the question? I'm not sure I understand. Okay. This is from page 73 of, of uh, Froome's work. Okay, I'm looking at it, yeah. Okay. Is this to be considered code language, as was uh, suggested on your show concerning spiritual death? He said the death that God threatened actually began in Eden. It doesn't say that he died in Eden. It said it began. And as I told you, I believe, well, I could be wrong about that. But as I've affirmed in my podcast and in in that conversation, uh, and as many theologians have admitted, Adam and Eve began to die. I don't see how there's any code language there, and I don't see how this is anything other than uh, what we've already said. 
Okay. Frankly. Um, should we consider you will surely die within the context of all that Scripture says concerning death? We should interpret any verse in light of what all of Scripture says, yes. Okay. So when we present ourselves as those alive from the dead in Romans 6.13, what, 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 what do you think we should believe there? Uh, well, as I said in my uh, rebuttal, here, let me pull it up. Um, as I said in my rebuttal, if uh, there are two options that I offered you, okay, uh, and actually both could be true. One is proleptically, uh, and as I said, if if Scripture calls a living person dead proleptically because of the inevitable death that awaits him on account of his being guilty and separated from God, then if if he has a change of heart in the present, you know that God works in the elect, resulting in faith and justification, that likewise would lead inevitably to something, and it would lead to future resurrection under eternal life, which would be which could proleptically be referred to as coming to life. Alternatively, as I offered, it could be a metaphor. So. If a spiritual death is figurative, as Gil said, of uh, um, of a life lived, you know, immorally, well, then a restoration of fellowship to God, uh, given a new heart that seeks God and desire to, to, to do good, could likewise be described using the analogy of having come to life. I, both, okay. yeah. Is that how an atheist views death, Mister Date? Uh, I'm sorry. Is that how an atheist views it, death, Mister Date? Is what how an atheist views date, death? What you just presented. Once again, when we cited atheists' uh, understanding of death, uh, we were talking about the second death, which is not what I'm referring to here. And, by the way, what an atheist does, and actually I would say that this is practically universal, uh, that the definition of death is different from what death entails. In other words, the definition of death is lifelessness, whether you're an atheist or otherwise, but it may entail different things in both cases. So that the point that I'm getting at is that if spiritual death can be spoken of uh, metaphorically or or if death can be used proleptically, then yeah, it is what an atheist means in the sense of having no life, having no life with God or coming to a point or inevitably headed toward death. Yeah. Okay. So in Ephesians 2, if we're dead in trespasses and sins... Is that proleptic? No, I would. I would probably. Agree. It's possible. I, I think that's quite reasonable. Uh, but I would probably more be more in line to agree with Albert Barnes, who said that they were dead in relation to that to which they were afterward uh, became alive, to holiness. In relation to real spiritual life, they were in consequence of sin, like a dead man in regard to the objects which are around him. So, no, I would interpret that more likely to be metaphorical rather than proleptic. But either way, it makes perfect sense. If, if trespasses and sins lead inevitably to death, then you could speak of somebody who's in trespasses and sins and hasn't been forgiven of them as dead proleptically. Absolutely. Okay. Um, are we then alive proleptically? Well, that's exactly one, one interpretation I, that I offered. In fact, just a few right. moments ago, I, I offered the metaphorical view as well. But no, right. notice that that doesn't deny regeneration. What it denies is one particular understanding of regeneration. I see. Does it deny the Reformed? perspective of a regeneration. I don't think that reformed tradition is monolithic in every imaginable detail. And, and what's more is I don't think that disagreeing with one element of a reformed position makes somebody not reformed. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, have you have you come up with a uh, an answer for what every sacrifice shall be salted salted with salt means? I can't tell you how happy it is that uh, it is that I that you brought that up. Um, so I did some research on that. 
And uh, when you originally asked me what I thought, uh, you know, I told you I wasn't sure. I actually tended to agree with you that it probably had something to do with the sacrifices in Leviticus that are salted with fire. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, those sacrifices after being seasoned with salt were burned up and destroyed, so that doesn't really hurt my case. But what's interesting is after claiming that there's no textual basis for Fudge's interpretation, what I discovered is that Bruce Metzger offers exactly that textual basis. In his commentary on the Greek New Testament, he points out that the salted, that the references to Leviticus aren't the only interpreta- interp- early interpolations of that text. He all, other modifications include will be consumed with fire, sacrifices will, will be consumed, will be tested with fire. Uh, he even says, and their substance will be destroyed. So we actually do have early interpolators who understood it differently in a way that would That's- apply quite well. And, and also, I just want to point out really briefly, I apologize uh-huh. for taking up much of your time, but, but what you didn't do is actually look into the work that Fudge cited by Weston Fields, where he makes a good case citing uh, experts in the area of, uh, of uh, Hebrew language that demonstrate that there is a Hebrew idiom that uh, salted with fire. Oh, uh, I, did, I, I, I did read that, actually. Oh, great. Okay. Um, uh, I just didn't find it convincing at all. What Fudge does a lot is go into... Well, it, sounds, it sounds like you're making yeah, a statement. Yeah, you have a I, question? That, that's, that's fine. I just stopped it. Um... Uh, did I either ignore or overstate Isaiah 66 in context of Mark 9? As a matter of fact, I wasn't the only one who noted, noted that um, you actually didn't um, it appear, uh, to us anyway, it appeared as though you didn't interpret the fact that the dead are, uh, or that the people there are, are corpses. You, what you did, it appeared to us, and I stress that, it was our perception, that what you did is that you said since Daniel 12, 2, uh, which is the only other place where that word contempt is used, must refer to everlasting, ongoing existence in, uh, contemptuously or something like that, that therefore, uh, okay. the, the, yeah. So no, I do think you ignored one element of it. Okay. Um, what do you do with the everlasting contempt? Um, do you still um, uh, do you still affirm that it's talking about the contempt of others? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, throughout Scripture, shame and contempt, uh, and, and contempt in the ca- in this case is only used in Isaiah sixty six twenty four, where it clearly refers to how the dead are perceived by others or remembered by others. Uh, shame and contempt don't have anything to do with an, uh, an experience on the part of the one who is the object of that shame. It has to do with an experience on the, who, uh, of the person who is the subject of that shame. Okay. Um, did you realize that you just said um, in the answer to your, to your last, uh, in the answer to the last, that you said the people are corpses? Is was that intentional? It wasn't intentional, but I have no, I'm not going to back away from that. I mean, Adam was called Adam before he had life. He was essentially a corpse, you know, sans life, and then God breathed into him the divine breath of life, and he came to life. So, yeah, I think you can speak of a person even though their body is dead. Okay. Um, weren't you talking earlier about um, the corpse no longer being part of the person? Can you quote me? Because I don't recall saying that. Uh, okay. When you... When I went to Daniel 12.2, the reason I did so is because um, the person um, – when you're talking about the person, you're not talking about just the body. You're talking about the body and soul, and Daniel 12.2 casts further light on that. Um, why do you think that it was um, unreasonable for me to consider Daniel 12.2's um, um, eternal te- contempt in – tandem with eternal life. I don't. I think it's quite reasonable to turn to Daniel 12.2. What I said was that it appeared to us as though you were ignoring one element of Isaiah 66. Okay. When the bodies have been... um, If the bodies have been reduced to 
lifeless corpses, as you say, but the souls continue on, uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to address the part of the the part of the person that continues on as the main subject of the discussion? If we're talking about the first death, well, we're talking about the first death going into the second death, are we not? And into the no, quite state? the contrary. Revelation says people come out of the first death and then are cast into the second. Okay, but we're talking about the first death, the intermediate state, and then the end. But it looks like I am out of time. Okay, thank you. And we are now into the closing. So we have now the eight-minute closing, and I believe that is the negative closing. So it will be Joshua. You have your eight minutes whenever you're ready. All right. We, when we're, I am not sure that I'm convinced by Chris's uh, arguments because it still doesn't seem that he has given us a biblical definition of death. Um, he has stated that I did not bring everything up in this, in this debate. That's the thing with, with um, preparing for a debate. There has to be the exegesis done. What Chris hasn't done is get into the exegesis of the text. He'll probably disagree with you, but when I went into the exegesis of the text in question, that um, he had said that you know there was none or practically no um, no attention paid to. I did pay the attention to it, but that hasn't been addressed. Now I know it's he has the positive case, but it seems like he has been faulting me throughout this uh, throughout this discussion that I haven't presented a case. Um, for my position. Well, that's not my job. I'm presenting the negative case. It's my job to pick apart his. Um, now, in some sense, I do have to make a positive case. In only some sense. My sense, the, the case I've been trying to make is that what you have here depends on how you define these things. And how he's defining it is it doesn't account for the entirety of the biblical case. Um, when he talks about the no mores, when he talks about the destruction, when he talks about slain, killed, you know, they're faulting me for not talking about the corpses. Well, the corpses, yes, they're there, but that, that pretty much assumes his position to begin with that if you have to concentrate on those corpses, well, those bodies are discarded. Those bodies, those particular bodies, are not going to be in view again. When they're raised again, it will be to a, a new corrupted body, the wicked. It will be a, uh, a reinstatement into this corrupted body, and that is the condition to which they will be um, condemned eternally. Now, the fact that I don't pay attention to the corpses as much as they'd like me to, I don't see why I have to. There, I don't see any reason why this should be considered to be the center of my argument when the center of my argument is that man is more than just a corpse. But Chris can't tell you whether a dead man can be more than a corpse or not. Chris can't tell you what happens to that man in between the first death and the second death. Chris can't tell you, and, and I know he'll affirm this again, that, that um, he can say this, but if he can't tell you what that man is, he can't tell you what it means for that man to die. Now, 
he can use other people's position, but if he himself does not have any basis to stand upon when talking about these things, he cannot talk about them intelligibly. He can talk about from other people's position intelligibly, and he might borrow that for himself. But that's the difference between principle and practice. In principle, Chris cannot talk about these things. In principle. In practice, he's talking about them anyway. But there's an inconsistency between his principle and his practice. Now, Chris can say that hypothetically there's this, hypothetically there's that. He can try and do an internal critique of my position, but if he doesn't have a, a coherent position from which to critique it from, then he can't be actually making that critique because where was he standing when he said all this to begin with? The objection has to be from a ground where you can stand on. Um, when we talk about verses like Isaiah 66, what are we talking about exactly? I mean, when we talk about the um, the corpses and the, the smoldering and the rotting and the consumed by fire and maggots, are we to consider that as the empirical thing? Are we con- to consider that as just the birds eating them up, just the left out there in the streets? Or is that symbolic for something? There's the immediate... There's the immediate fulfillment. Yes, there will be rotting, smoldering corpses. Great. What about the the um, ultimate fulfillment of that? What does that mean? That same um, that same contempt, that same um, left out to to be the contemptual contemptuous thing that they are. They will be out there for all to see. They will be out there eternally. There will be nothing but abomination, nothing but corruption. That is what they are and will be eternally. Now, which which one makes more sense? Chris has gone all over the place, jumping from this passage to this passage to this passage to this passage, but it's all assuming the same thing about death. In, in any passage he goes to, he's assuming the same thing when he comes to it. He's assuming that death means this. Now, am I assuming that death means corruption and that there is a whole a whole um, variety of what corruption means as far as the um, the principles are laid out there? Sure. But where am I getting that from? The scripture. Sin brings forth death. But sin is not something of itself. Death is not something of itself. Death is not the the dualistic opposite of life. Sin is not the dualistic opposite of righteousness. They're parasitic. It latches onto the opposing the opposing thing as a lesser parasitic form of it. It's not something of itself. But death is being considered in um, an empirical sense, in a materialistic sense. Now he can say, no, it's not. But when we're looking at it, that's sure what it seems to be like. When he's talking about the um, the destruction of the wicked, he keeps talking about it in materialistic terms. Well, how can you talk about the destruction of something immaterial in imperialist in, in um, empirical terms? You can't. You have to talk about it in other terms. You have to talk about it in um, immaterial terms. Now, it's also talking about the destruction of God on the wicked, but what is that supposed to mean? What does it actually mean? 
What he tells us is that it is the reduction to ashes. How do we know? How does he know? Are the wicked more than the sum of their parts? Are the wicked more than just the bodies? Are they a spirit and a body? What is the difference between the destruction of the body and the destruction of the soul? He can't tell you. Where are, where do they go once they die? He can't tell you. Now, he can tell you that after whatever happens, they're raised to have something happen to them, but even then he can't tell you what it is for the body and the soul to be destroyed because he doesn't have a body or a soul. He doesn't have a theology of that. When you put that together with the nature of God, with the nature of man, you have to have a cohesive picture. And I don't believe Mr. Dade has that. That's all, that's all my time, and thank you very much. Okay, uh, now it's uh, time for Chris's eight-minute closing. Uh, ready whenever you are, Chris. My opponent once wrote, quote, Mr. Date also considers himself reformed, which I believe is an odd identification to make given the crystal clear confessional systematic position on eternal punishment, unquote. Well, if what makes one reformed is one's affirmation of the entirety of a reformed confession and the entirety of its system, and if a denial of elements of a mere three paragraphs out of 160 disqualifies one as reformed, well, then I guess I shall have to hand in my membership card. I find it strange, however, that an inability to affirm less than 2% of the LBCF would somehow disqualify me uh, for the reform label. Denying certain elements of those three paragraphs in no way affects my ability to affirm the remaining 157 paragraphs. As a matter of fact, I posit that I'm able to make better sense of them. Take paragraph 3 of chapter 11, for example, when I affirm that, quote, Christ by his obedience and death and by the sacrifice of himself through the blood of his cross underwent instead of them the penalty due to them, unquote, I actually believe that in his sacrificial death he suffered what the elect would have, as I explained in my first rebuttal. Conversely, Reformed traditionalists like my brother Joshua here cannot. Or take paragraph 3 of chapter 7, which says that, quote, all the descendants of fallen Adam who have ever been saved have obtained a life and blessed immortality, unquote. And paragraph 1 of chapter 17, which says that God, quote, continues to beget and nourish in the elect faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit which lead to immortality, unquote. I actually believe that life and immortality are the result of salvation alone. Conversely, my, refrain, my reformed traditionalist brothers and sisters cannot. Nevertheless, if the people, if people object to my self-identification as reformed, then so be it. What I love about the reformed tradition, what makes it great, is not its adherence to creeds or, the te- or to the teachings of the theological giants who have been its leaders, but that at its heart, at its core, unlike Rome and even other Protestant movements, the reformed tradition se- seeks to obje- uh, subject the fallible and ever-changing thoughts and traditions of men to the authority of the holy, inerrant, unchanging word of God. And more than any other alternative, it elevates and glorifies God and truly recognizes the consequences of the fall and the total inability of man to autonomously free himself from slavery to sin. But unfortunately, my reformed brethren are just as capable as anyone else of succumbing to zealously defending one's tradition so fervently that it blinds one to the truth and subjects scripture to the speculations of men. And so it is when it comes to the doctrine of final punishment, as I believe has been clearly demonstrated by my opponent today. It's clear that he is very intelligent, thinks logically, and treats the scriptures as authoritative and with care in other areas, as even some of his own friends have told me. But it seems that zeal in defending tradition has blinded him to the truth of annihilationism as clearly and obviously laid out in scripture, so much so that he cannot argue for his position at all, at least not in this debate. So let me repeat how I summarized my case in my opening. 
One, eternal punishment is by means of eternal fire, a phrase referring to fire which utterly destroys and renders lifeless. Two, Jesus' words in Mark 9.48 quote Isaiah 66.24, which explicitly describes corpses whose unquenchable fire and undying worm are idioms the Bible uses to communicate complete consumption and shame in the eyes of others. Three, Jesus says in Matthew 3.12, Luke 3.17, and Matthew 13 that the wicked will be chaffed, burned down completely in a furnace of fire, utilizing the imagery of Malachi 4 where they are reduced to ashes. Four, by hearkening to Isaiah 66.15, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that eternal destruction is being executed, never to live again. Five, Matthew 10.28 indicates that whereas only the body dies in the first death, both body and soul will be killed in final punishment in the way only the body does in the first. Six, the eternal torment portrayed in the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation symbolically communicates the permanent end of what is seen tormented in fire, the end of death in Hades, the end of the beast's dominion, the end of Satan, and the end of the wicked whose bodies and souls are reunited in resurrection. My opponent's responses to those elements of my case to those of which he actually responded, that is, were inadequate, and as I demonstrated, the nature of God, the nature of death, and the nature of the atonement serve as no challenge to today's debate thesis. In fact, in many ways, as I demonstrated, they're far more consistent with it. In the opening chapter of his latest and final book, Hell, A Final Word, Edward Fudge reflects on the path that began with an assignment to research final punishment and resulted most recently in a feature film telling Fudge's story. He writes, quote, This entire chain of events resulted from an intensive restudy of the subject that I did not plan and required a change of my own mind that I did not desire. Indeed, it would have happily avoided, I would have happily avoided the entire matter and everything connected with it had there been any honest way around it, unquote. Well, I can relate. I did not plan on reconsidering my view of final punishment either, and certainly did not desire to adopt a view considered heterodox, if not downright heretical, by those friends and teachers whom I deeply respect and admire. Some part of me honestly wishes I had never listened to Dr. Glenn Peoples' podcast and had never interviewed Edward Fudge or read his book. Perhaps I would be able to remain honestly and blissfully ignorant and would have never adopted this view so maligned by most of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But those things did happen, and the unwavering commitment that I have to the authority and inerrancy of God's word forces me today to accept annihilation as the biblical view of final punishment. I want to close today by speaking directly to three kinds of people listening to this debate. First, to those of you who have found my case even a little compelling, perhaps like it was for me when I began to really consider the view I now hold, it terrifies you to imagine losing respect in the eyes of people you admire, being considered heterodox or heretic by them, and having ministry doors closed to you. I I get that. Maybe you can't imagine why the majority of Christians since the third century rejected my view. I understand that too. However, I believe in a firm, I must, however I might respond to those concerns, I want to encourage you to treat the scripture as the authority that it is. We must believe and affirm what it teaches, even where it goes contrary to long established tradition, and even when it will cause others to, uh, others we respect to part ways with us. And so I encourage you to continue to research this topic, open to the possibility that most Christians have been up for a very long time wrong. Second, to those of you who do not find my case even a little compelling, there are those of us, like myself, obviously, who do. And the responses typically given by adherence to my opponent's view, like those that have been given today, have historically been woefully weak and inadequate. If you think affirming today's debate thesis is a serious error, even heresy, and if those of us annihilationists who affirm it are blinded to the truth, we need you to seriously improve the quality of the case for the traditional view of final punishment. Though some of us, to be sure, are motivated in part by an emotional response to the idea of eternal conscious punishing, there are many of us, like myself, who are deeply committed to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And we think the case for annihilationism is indisputable. We need to see a very good biblical case for your view if we're going to abandon what has become so very obvious to us. So please, take our case seriously and develop better responses than have historically been given and those that have been given today. 
Finally, if there is anybody listening to this who has not trusted in the sacrifice of Christ as the only means by which your sins can be be forgiven, whether my position in affirming today's debate thesis as the biblical view of final punishment or whether it's my opponent's position in, in denying it, the reality is that if you die apart from Christ, you will remain in your sins and you have no further recourse. You will rise from the dead when the Lord returns. You will face the reality of the existence of a just and holy God, the one that you deny now consciously. You will be judged guilty of your sins and sentenced to an eternal punishment. Still worse, you will lose out on an eternity of immortality spent in the presence of God. Please repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, recognizing that you cannot be good enough, that you are sinful, and you have to trust in him as the only forgiveness for your sins. Now, I'm sure that my opponent would be happy to hear from you if you have any questions, uh, as would I. So please feel free to email us. And with that, I'll, I'll close my closing argument. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the, for the closing arguments. We're now moving into the question and answer session. Again, that will consist of four questions alternating for a total of eight to each of the participants. And these were submitted to me ahead of time um, by members of the reading and listening communities of various blogs and podcasts. I apologize if some of them, the material had been covered, but I think it still is helpful in order to flesh it out a bit more. And obviously it's things that people are interested in hearing. So now let's go to the first question, which is to Chris. Chris, the question is, on what basis do you presuppose an atheist view of death? answer to that question is that I don't. Uh, I'm really not sure where this um, assertion came from. Uh, the reality is that uh, when we used uh, the atheist understanding of death, we were using it as an illustration to illustrate a conclusion that we had come to, or at least speaking of myself, a conclusion that I had come to specifically about the second death. Uh, we weren't, I wasn't presupposing a materialist understanding of death. Now, if w- what is meant is why do I presuppose that death means lifelessness? Uh, again, I don't think that that is a presupposition. Uh, when the body is described in scripture as being dead, when a corpse is described as being a dead body, that is not a corrupted form of life. That's the absence of it. It's a death that began in uh, Adam and Eve when they sinned. It's a death that Paul uses in Romans uh, uh, Romans 5.12 to, to show that people were guilty of sin because they died between Adam and Moses was there, when there wasn't a law. Um, th- this is the meaning of death throughout scripture. And a, a, a tiny percentage of the uses of death refer to something else. And so the question becomes, uh, are we to view the primary fundamental meaning of death as something different from the way the majority of the passages that use death refer to? Or do we side with brilliant theologians that, that I've mentioned, K. Scott Oliphant for one, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, Herman Bovink for one, and some of the others that I mentioned, who, who, who understand that that view of death is used proleptically and metaphorically to, re- to refer to the currently living. But again, I just want to re- reiterate, there's no presupposing going on. I used the atheist understanding of death as an illustration to illustrate a conclusion I had come to from the text of scripture about specifically the second death. Okay. Um, and I'm sorry, I lost connection there for a moment, so I wasn't able to keep time for Chris. I trust that you had kept within your um, 2.5 minutes. Uh, Joshua, now you have a minute follow-up. Yes, first of all, um, I'm not 
I'm not convinced that this isn't a presupposition. A, a presupposition can come from what you believe about Scripture also. When we talk about a presupposition, it is something that you are taking from Scripture. But if you're reading Scripture in a certain way, that is presuppositional. Um, secondly, it's not merely that it's... Um, that it's being taken that particular way. When we're talking about how an atheist views death, the, the, the atheist does not view that there is a first and a second death. They, they conflate the two together. And one is essentially the same as the other. There is no difference. There is no distinction. There is nothing else to it. Um, the, the separation of the body um, and the soul. That is, that is time. I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. So with it just being one minute, sometimes that comes up upon you um, really quickly. This next question now is for you, and you'll have two and a half minutes to answer it. question to you is, is holding your view of hell an essential doctrine? And if so, why? And if not, why not? You have two and a half minutes. Uh, yes, it is an essential doctrine because it is central to one of the six tenets of systematic theology. It is um, uh Central to eschat, um, to eschatology, um, the study of the last things. Um, the nature of hell is very um, intrinsic to what you're talking about when you're talking about um, what will happen in the last things. Um, when you have a particular view of hell, well, this comes from something else. It comes from your view of death. It comes from your view of God. It comes from your view of justice. I mean, it talks about all sorts of things such as that. Um, so yes, it is very important and it is very um, central to what the nature of um, we are to believe. When you think of doctrine, you're thinking of them as a unit. You're not thinking of them piecemeal. You're not thinking of this as something over here. You're not thinking of this as something over here. You're thinking it thinking of it as a inner interrelated web of beliefs that all have to mesh together in order for you to have a cohesive, coherent view of the end times. But it also relates to your view of man. It also relates to your view of God. You can't have one thing not have um, essential ramifications everywhere else in your theology. Um, if you're only talking about hell as a very minor thing in your eschatology, you're not putting the, the importance on it that it has in Scripture, and you're not putting the importance on it that it has in um, the entirety of uh, Christian belief over the centuries. So what you need to do is to have it be just as important as Scripture places it and just as important in our system of theology as uh, the church historically has had it and that the, um, and that the Bible has it, and certainly uh, exactly as uh, Christ had it. That's all I have. Okay, Chris, you now have a one minute to follow up. Yeah, you know, if, if it were true that my view of uh, final punishment somehow 
uh, broke this uh, systematic unit, um, well, then, yeah, I would say that it, it is an essential doctrine. Uh, however, my opponent has entirely failed in every imaginable way to demonstrate that that impact actually happens. Um, and so in light of the fact that one's view of God, one's view of uh, uh, eschatology when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, for example, which Paul says that those who deny it are uh, heretics, you know, um, if these things were true, if denying uh, the traditional view of hell had this kind of impact, then I would agree that it's essential. But it clearly does not. Uh, and as I've demonstrated, you know, many areas in systematic theology, like the nature of death, like the nature of God, uh, like the atonement, are far better understood in my view. And so I would say that it's probably a serious, inexcusable error uh, to hold the traditional view of hell. But I certainly would not say that uh, either side is denying an essential to the Christian faith. Okay. Next question is directed towards Chris, who will have two and a half minutes to answer. What is the proper role of tradition in determining truth in these cases, or more specifically, how much weight do we give to tradition? While a strong exegetical case can be made for annihilationism, I'm somewhat hesitant of going against what even most of the church fathers taught without a good reason. What would you think of that? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question, uh, and I struggled with that myself. In fact, in a, in a post that I'm planning to write for uh, RethinkingHell.com, introducing myself, I explained that after the exegetical case became so clear to me, um, if, if I had, if it had been true that this had been the monolithic teaching, that, that, that the traditional view of hell had been the uh, unanimous monolithic teaching of the church ever since the post-apostolic era, uh, that, then I wouldn't know what to do, quite frankly. Uh, but the reality is that, as is similarly the case with preterism, um, there were issues in those first centuries which were hotly debated, were undecided. Um, I, I didn't get an opportunity during the debate proper to quote uh, early church fathers who clearly taught annihilationism, not the least of which is Irenaeus, uh, and, and there are others besides himself. And so what I, what I see is that there were teachers within the early centuries, very prominent, respected ones, uh, who held this view. And in fact, in the earliest couple of centuries, except for the latter part of the second, there was no indication of the traditional view of hell at all. They just simply recapitulate the text of Scripture. They regurgitate the text of Scripture, and both my opponent and I think that the text of Scripture supports our position. So here's a point that I'm getting at. My view was held early on, as I think can be demonstrated, uh, that, that, as I think that there, it can be demonstrated that there are hints of preterism found in the early centuries. But then, like, it's similar to the case with, I would argue, infant baptism. You had this centuries-long period of time where hardly anybody questioned, if anybody at all, really forcibly challenged uh, infant baptism and you don't see preterism for centuries and centuries either and then the reformation happens and things begin to change and it's right around that time that people like Luther and others start questioning the immortality of the soul um, I, I see I see very similar parallels between preterism and uh, infant baptism and so uh, I Gosh, I really highly respect the traditions of, uh, or sorry, the the, the um, interpreters and commentators and theologians of the past. But you know, even as the London Baptist Confession of Faith says, it's got to be the Scripture. The, the Scripture is that by which all of those things that I just mentioned are tested. And since we have some precedent for this view in the early centuries by people that are not at all unorthodox or, or heretical, uh, and and since some of the Champions of the Reformation, like Luther himself, uh, appear to have begun to question centuries-long accepted tradition when it comes to the immortality of the soul and, and infant baptism and others. Um, I, I see no reason to why we should abandon the exegetical case for Scripture uh, for annihilationism simply because for centuries people taught otherwise. Okay, Joshua, you have um, one minute to, to follow up on that. Yes, obviously... Um 
a tradition is subservient to scripture. Um, but when you talk about a scriptural tradition, that's the primary meaning of tradition in the Reformed faith. Um, it is the tradition passed on in the scripture that we are to keep. Um, what we also must recognize, however, is that throughout, throughout the history of the church, and I would question his citation of Irenaeus and would mention that Luther reversed his conclusions on immortality of the soul, just like he did many of them, um, that when we're dealing with the historical interpreters of the Bible, that we recognize that when the majority of the history of the church has interpreted the text in a way not even close to the way that we're doing it, there's probably something wrong with how we're interpreting it. Um, that's all I have to say there. Okay, the next question is for Joshua, and this is a two-part question. Um, part one, if the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment, why is Jesus not stuck being consciously tormented forever and ever, and he willingly decided to take on the punishment for our sins? And part two, which is related, assuming you take Paul's statement that the wages of sin is death to actually mean eternal conscience torment, how could Paul have had to say it differently for him to actually mean just death, as in not living anymore? And you have two and a half minutes. All right. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't, I don't read it as the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment. Um, it, eternal conscious torment is a way that many people have expressed the second death. But the wages of sin is not just the second death. It's also the first death. It's also the intermediate state. It culminates in the second death. Um, the culmination of the wages of sin is the condemnation of men to death for eternity in hell um, where they will be tormented correct but it is the torment of the wrath of God being poured out upon them for eternity so it's um, we're not talking about some reductionistic the wages of sin is eternal conscious torment we're talking about death in all of its senses we're talking about death as corruption we're talking about death as the event we're talking about death as the state we're talking about all kinds of different things that we need to keep it in mind um, let's talk about how could Paul have said it differently uh, that's a speculative question I make it a rule not to answer speculative questions by speculating especially um, I don't know even how to answer how could Paul have said it differently. That's like asking how could scripture have said something that it didn't say. Um, I don't see any um, I don't see any purpose to answering a question in that fashion. I don't see any um, reason why we should even accept such a question as it's stated because that just seems to be asking how scripture could have been not scripture. So I don't see the point to that. Uh, the other thing is, when we're talking about the um, wages of sin, we're talking about uh, something that is a lesser form. When we're talking about death, we're talking about the separation of soul from body. That is something that is in, in itself corrupted. It's something that is not um, natural. That is... That in, a, in, a, in and of itself is a corruption of life. So when we're talking about death as corruption, that's what we're talking about um, when we're talking about the separation of soul from body. That's it. 
Okay, Chris, you have uh, one minute to follow up. Okay, yeah, he didn't answer the, the first part of the question about Christ, but, but I know how he would answer it. He would say that the infinite wrath of God was able to be borne by the infinite person of the Son of God. And I don't particularly disagree. Uh, the question is whether or not that wrath was primarily experienced in the hours leading up to the moment, moment of his death, or if it was the punishment of death uh, and he remained dead for three days rather than the infinite amount of time that people will uh, remain dead, so to speak, will never live again, um, he, he was able to bear that infinite wrath of God in a finite period of time. Uh, I will point out, however, that unlike my opponent's position, I actually believe that what Christ died, uh, that what Christ, Christ did on the cross, namely die for us, is something that the wicked will uh, face on their own. Uh, and as for how could they express it any differently, I, I, I can relate to that question. Um, I think that I laid out a case pretty clearly that in every imaginable way that they could have, they expressed that, uh, that the uh, final punishment would be annihilation. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, the next question is for Chris. Um, Chris, annihilationists say the judgment is eternal because the killing is eternal since the wicked dead never live again. So would you say that when a day is past, it is eternally past? That's sort of a hard question to, to answer. Uh, I, I don't think they correctly understand what we're talking about. Um, I'm, I'm going to go back to my opening uh, and read something that I said in my opening, um, linguists recognize a difference between two kinds of deverbal nouns. A deverbal noun is, is a nominalization of a verb. Okay, Linguists recognize this, uh, despite Robert Peterson's claim to the contrary in his book, Two Views on Hell with Edward Fudge. The reality is, uh, the reality is linguists recognize this difference between nouns in myriad languages. It's not just English. Uh, and, and as I demonstrated in my opening, this is a, dem- uh, 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 difference between different kind of nouns that the scripture recognizes when it comes to eternal, uh, salvation and eternal redemption and eternal judgment and so forth. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is that, uh, what I'm not saying that you can take the word day, which is isn't a nominalization of a verb at all. And, and you can apply the same thing that we're talking about when we talk about distinctions between different kinds of nouns. What we have are examples in scripture and in modern language in which a uh, deverbal noun refers to a result uh, and other cases where it refers to the process. And, you know, traditionalists under, uh, assume that the parallel between eternal punishment and eternal salvation and Matthew, uh, uh, sorry, eternal life and eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 46 uh, extends beyond the word eternal to the nature of the nouns. But that's, but that's absurd. If, if I offered you a, a guarantee on some work that I did on your car and I told you that both the parts and the labor would last for a year, you would know that I, what I'm not telling you that the labor is going to, in an ongoing process, last for a year, and yet the part would. And so you recognize that when you speak of two parallel durations, the nature of the noun to which they refer uh, isn't the parallel. The parallel is the, parallel is the duration. And so when it comes to punishment in Matthew 25, 46, what we have to ask ourselves is, first of all, how is the phrase eternal fire there used? And my opponent admitted that eternal fire, at least in one sense, uh, in the other two places it's used, refers to a fire that reduces to remains. Uh, he thinks there's another sense it refers to, but he didn't demonstrate it. Um, so, so that's the first question I ask, and, and, and those phrases that he uses to communicate what eternal punishment is refer to being killed. Uh, and then the second question you have to ask is, what does the rest of Scripture say about eternal punishment? Uh, and I demonstrated, uh, you know, pretty comprehensively, I think, what uh, the text of Scripture says final punishment is. And so, but with the, with the analogy of Scripture and the local context in mind, uh, I, I am forced to understand this as a deverbal result noun, whereas life uh, is not is a different noun entirely. Okay, Joshua, you have um, one minute to follow up. All right. I would just note that uh, if we take um, eternal salvation and uh, 
and those passages of a like sense, we are understanding them as something where only the effects are in view. That's not necessarily the case, as argued on the website. Um, further, that when we're actually addressing the question itself, um, when we say that a day has passed into eternities, shall we say, um, the, the effects of that day will be felt in eternity. Well, according to the same sense that Chris seems to be talking about. So, yes, I do believe that the way that they're talking about, yes, the effects of that day will have eternal consequences. But the problem is that Chris is saying that is all that this means. And I don't think that that's acceptable, reasonable, or right. That's it. Okay. Uh, next question is for Joshua. It's a Joshua, in your May 26 podcast, you took exception with certain conditionalists for arguing that on traditionalism, the justice of God is never satisfied. You asserted from the perspective of eternity or, quote, the eternal economy, end quote, God's justice is satisfied. But you then went on to say that, quote, there is no ability for man to satisfy the justice of God, end quote. You further stated that in hell, man's debt to God will be compounding for eternity and that sinners cannot, quote, merit an actual satisfaction of God's justice, end quote. So on traditionalism, is God's justice satisfied or isn't it? If man has no ability to satisfy the justice of God, then how can his endless punishment, even when viewed from the perspective of eternity, qualify as an actual satisfaction of justice? You have two and a half minutes. Uh, the reason that the justice of God is satisfied is because God is satisfying it. Um, the reason that man cannot just cannot uh, provide that justification is because man is incapable of providing it. The justice that God is um, satisfied in is the eternal punishment of the wicked. Um, it is not the case that justice depends on whether man can fulfill the obligations that are on him. The Fulfillment of that justice is God um, coming in flaming fire, bringing vengeance. Um, we're not talking about something that man merits. We're talking about something that God institutes. Um, God is instituting justice. When we're speaking of God as just, we're speaking of God as infinitely just. We're speaking of God as, as, as eternally just. It's not talking about the nature of man as, um, justifier. We're talking about God as just and justifier exactly the same way that we're talking about Christ being just and justifier and redeeming us. Um, it's still monergistic. We're not going synergistically to say that man is satisfying the demands of God. We are saying that God is satisfying the demands of God and the demands of God are that men uh, be punished for their sins in accordance with the the offense of them. And the offense of them is that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, <clears throat> when we got into the question of the beast and what this means and all of these things, you notice that it kept coming back to what we're, we meant when we're talking about torment. Well, Chris believes that this is a... Um, that torment is so symbolic for um, the, this rendered lifeless, and I believe that torment is symbolic for the pouring out of God's wrath that will torment the 
the men assigned to that state. So again, it's God being just and justifier, and it is man being unable to in both senses. That's all I have. Okay, uh, Chris, you have one minute to follow up on his response. Okay, yeah, you know, if uh, if God is timeless and eternal, and it's in that sense in which eternal justice and eternal wrath and stuff like that are expressed, as he, as my b- opponent admitted in his first rebuttal, um, then. <laughs> what determines if the mercy and wrath are eternal is not the ongoing experience of the object of that wrath. It has to do with the eternality of God himself. So he entire, he brought down, brought down his entire case. Uh, now as for this torment thing in Revelation, um, he says that the, the, the issue is that, uh, is a matter of interpretation of what torment means. No, the issue is that he is veering away from the divine interpretation that the interpreters of scripture in scripture give. Uh, the, the imagery is clearly referring to the same events in Daniel 7, Daniel 2, and in Revelation 20. And the interpreters of the Old Testament imagery make it clear that what is being communicated by the imagery of the beast is not what happens to the individuals comprising that institution, but the dominion of the institution. And that's something that my opponent's view fails to account for. Okay, next question is for Chris. Uh, Chris, annihilationists believe that the unbeliever will be put out of existence by God, given the fact that the Lord voluntarily dismissed his spirit in full fellowship with the Father and was not killed by God, furthermore never went out of existence. Are you not left without a substitute because Christ did not bear an experience with the sinner deserves? You have two and a half minutes. Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's incorrect. Uh, for one thing, it's assuming the dualistic understanding of uh, Christ's death. Uh, in fact, it not, not only assumes that, but it assumes a dualistic understanding of Christ's death in which his spirit lived on. Um, I don't assume that. That's a question that I'm still agnostic about. But here's the thing. As I explained in my, uh, in my first rebuttal when it comes to the nature of the atonement, traditionalists don't, understand, uh, don't believe that what Christ bore is identical to what the wicked will bear, uh, will bear in Gehenna either. So they're shooting themselves in the foot when they argue in this way by saying that somehow what Christ experienced isn't the same as what the elect would have experienced uh, as our, uh, you know, as our substitute. Uh, so I'm not willing to shoot myself in the foot like that. The reality is that uh, Scripture makes it clear that Christ died physically for our sins. Uh, that's clear in 1 Corinthians 15. It's clear in 1 Peter 3, 3.18. His death, uh, his body died. Uh, as, as repeatedly expressed during the line of cross-examination by my opponent, a corpse is not a corrupted, does not have a corrupted form of life. It is the, it has an absence of life. And yet that's something that they posit will never happen to the, uh, wicked in Gehenna. And so therefore they, they posit that that's something that would have never happened to the elect. And now here's, here's the problem with this. The problem is that they posit that, they have to posit that the wrath of God was was uh, born by our substitute on the cross in the hours of suffering leading up to the moment of his death. But if that wrath was completed, if that wrath was fully and completely borne by the Messiah on the cross up until the moment, was, a moment of his death, then his death becomes arbitrary and uh, nonsensical, arbitrary, un, uh, meaningless, uh, unimportant, um, because the elect wouldn't have died. The, the elect wouldn't have died. The wicked will not die in Gehenna in that fashion. Uh, now, as for not existing, no, I've, I've never said that that's the case. What I said is that uh, I posit the possibility that his human soul, if dualism is true, died. Uh, 
But his body died too, and it didn't cease to exist. So why should I say that a dead soul ceases to exist? Uh, I've seen people try to argue that a soul that dies does cease to exist, but that's just purely philosophical speculation, speculation I'm not willing to engage in. Um, so, you know, and as, and as for the whole person argument that I've seen, uh, Joshua make at his blog once, uh, Grudem himself says that the person of Christ experienced death, even though Jesus' divine nature did not actually die. Uh, he said that the death, the experience, Jesus went through the experience of death as a whole person. Uh, beyond that, scripture does not enable us to say more. And, and, you know, I'm willing to say just as much. So substitutionary atonement fits far better with my view than it does with my opponents. Okay, Joshua, you have one minute to follow up. All right. Um, what Mr. Date's given us is, I mean, it's saying that he doesn't know. I mean, he knows, but he doesn't know at the same time and in a similar sense. I mean, I don't know how many more times we can say it, but, you know, if he's agnostic to the nature of Christ, he doesn't know what, what Christ actually bore. The, the wrath of God was poured down on Christ and you notice he ascribed a view to me that I didn't put. Um, when he bore, when he bore the wrath of God, he bore it unto the point of death, but his death was, uh, a voluntary death. So yes, he did bear what the unbeliever does, but see, he's bearing the first and the second death all at once. And that's something very interesting to think about. That's it. Okay, we now have the last question. It's for Joshua. Joshua, upon what basis do you suppose the only form of punishment is consciousness? Why do you presuppose eternal separation, e.g. non-life, is no punishment at all? Would that mean criminals who are executed for egregious crimes are not really enduring the consequences of their actions since they are not around to sense their punishment? And you have two and a half minutes. Uh, this question sounds like he was asking somebody else that question because uh, I don't know what he's taking that from. Um, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like anything I've ever written. It sounds like uh, what's been put out in... Um, by other authors, but I don't think I've ever said that. Uh, I mean, a punishment is a punishment of a uh, conscious being, correct. But a punishment is something that is has a subject and an object. If the object is no longer there, it's no longer a punishment of that object. So when you have a subject without an object, then you no longer have punishment. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying that the only punishment is a conscious, I don't know what even what the question was trying to say, but the, <laughs> I don't even know who he was trying to talk to there. Um, basically, I'm just saying that the punishment that is being given is a punishment that condemns that condemns those who undergo it to an eternal death, a eternal corrupted death, which is the something that the entire person suffers and will continue to suffer because that is what the scripture says it is. Um, they'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. 
Yes, that's it. I don't know what else to answer for that one because I don't know who he's quoting there. So, anyway. Okay, Chris, you have one minute to follow up. Okay, three things I want to say, and i got to make this brief because there's a big one at the end. First, he just read the text of Revelation 2010 as if it's an empirical description of what uh, the wicked will suffer when we're dealing with apocalyptic imagery, um, despite all the uh, what, despite the divine interpretation offered in Daniel. Second of all, uh, he says that um, when you have eternal punishment, you have to have an ongoing uh, object of the verb, uh, and yet I demonstrated that John Gill, Jonathan Edwards, Robert Raymond, uh, even the text of Scripture itself in the book of Daniel make clear that that's not the case. You can speak of eternal punishment without there being an ongoing referent. But here's the thing that's most important. In answering uh, the previous question, he said that Jesus bore the first death and the second death. The consequence of doing that is to say that Jesus did not bear all of uh, Adam's, it does not bear all of the sin on the part of the elect. You know why? Because the elect still experience the first death. So he said, think about that. I would agree. Do think about that. Jesus bore, uh, if, if what Jesus bore when he bodily died was the first death, then the elect would not physically die in the first death, but they do. Thanks. Okay, that's it for the for the questions and answers, and that would conclude the debate for today. Okay, well, I just want to thank you both so much, Joshua, in all sincerity. Yeah. I know that at times we both got a little uh, animated, and, um, you know, such is the nature when you deal with serious issues, but I want you to know that I thank you for your time and for the seriousness with which you address this issue, and thank you, Didi, for moderating. Uh, I'll be looking forward to any thoughts that you have uh, after the debate. Thank you both. All right, well, I'm relieved that that is uh, over and done with, and I'm looking forward to addressing other topics on my debate. Next up on the The Apologetics podcast will be Steve Jeffrey on post-millennialism. Until then... (laughs) 